Welcome to the Safe and Effective Podcast, a show that dives deep into the world of medical human factors and user experience. I'm your host, Heidi Merzad. Are you passionate about making a difference in the medical field? Curious about the science behind designing usable, safe, and effective medical devices? Look no further. Every episode, we bring you exclusive interviews with experts from industry, academia, and government as they share their insights and experiences in the rapidly evolving world of medical human factors. From case studies to regulatory updates, we've got you covered. Stay ahead of the curve and learn valuable lessons that make a real impact on patient quality of life and user experience. Whether you're an industry expert or a novice looking to expand your knowledge, Safe and Effective, the Medical Human Factors podcast is for you. Join us as we explore the world of human factors and its impact on the medical device industry. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned and remember, be safe and effective. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. All right, hello everybody. This is episode 287. We're recording this live on June 29th, 2023. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by an esteemed panel of guests. We have Barry Kirby. Hello. We have Brian McDonald. Hello, everyone. And Rose Figueroa. Hola, hola. I am so happy to have all of you on. In fact, this is marks a big milestone for Human Factors Cast. I'd just like to take a moment and pause and appreciate this for the first time in our seven-year run, I guess, six, seven years. This is the first time that we've had a full panel of four people on during one of our normal shows. So thank you all for being here. Really excited to talk to you all. Tonight we'll be covering the Apple Vision Pro and we'll approach it from a human factors perspective. We'll also take questions from the community related to workplace struggles. That's fairly ambiguous. Essential UX stats and ethical considerations for UX researchers participating in research. But first we have some programming notes. I usually ask for this towards the end, but would you kindly... Give us a review. Tell your friends about us. And if you have the money and you want to support the show, just a buck gets you in the door of Patreon. All that stuff really helps. One more thing that I'll ask about is that we are starting our newsletter. So if you have thoughts and opinions about what topics you'd enjoy in a quarterly newsletter, head over to our Discord. Let us know what your thoughts are on that. We'd love to hear from you. But Barry, you do another podcast. You do 1202. What's going on over there? Oh, you should have, if only I'd realized you were going to mention it, then I might have had something prepared. No, over in 1202, we are talk, still talking artificial intelligence in hospitals with Kate Preston, friend of the show. She's been on with us in the past. And with AI all being, we do, everyone's talking chat GPT and all that sort of cool stuff. Kate, is, her PhD is looking at how we can use AI in the health domain, specifically hospitals, and how they can, how that AI can contribute. However, a lot of the findings that she comes out with during our interview has got nothing to do with AI, really. It's about the way that the organization of the health domain is actually stifling the adoption and development of technological and digital tools. So yeah, go down and have a listen to that and see what you think. Good chat. All right. Why don't we get right into it? 
That's right. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. Barry, why don't you do the little reading of the blurb thing? Let us know what's up. I'll do the reading of the little blurb thing. So we're talking about Apple Vision Pro, and here's everything you need to know. Apple has unveiled the Vision Pro, a new augmented reality or AR headset that boasts a host of advanced features and is expected to deliver the seamless experience and elegant design that has come to typify the brand's products. The Vision Pro has two displays plus an external panel with 23 million pixels overall. It also includes an IR and a LiDAR, which is light detecting and ranging cameras, and a dozen other sensors. Meanwhile, the operating system for the AR headset, Vision OS, has been touted as the first OS designed from the ground up for spatial computing and shares core components with macOS and iOS, but with visual processing optimized for the Vision Pro. Users are expected to enjoy driving a range of apps from Adobe's Lightroom to Microsoft Office. However, the drawback is going to be the high price, which starts at, and this is starts at, $3,499. Higher than most anticipated. There's an understatement. The headset is due to become available early next year. Brian, are you ready to pay the big bucks for yet another headset? I do VR, but for $3,500, I'm probably going to pass. It's a mixed bag. It's like, it's a huge step forward in refinement. It has really good vision. It has really good hand tracking, but it's a step back in actual VR capabilities. There's no haptics. There's no controllers. So you can't really play standard VR games. You don't get any tactile feel. So like, they're really focused on making a really like good, relaxed 2D environment, theoretically in 3D. And I think they nailed that part, but it's too baby step for me. Rose, what are your thoughts? I was going to say, like, you saying that just reminded me the Jason Bourne movies, right? It's just, they're, we're trying to go what, what would sell or what people would, maybe, I don't know if they were thinking like easing the people to it. Maybe they may have already been working on something of the researchers in the back end. But what we have right now. Like you said, it just seems they have every iPhone that it's new on every year. So maybe I would just skip them to the next year's run in that sense. So I I think here, I agree with both of you. And I think the big question for me is, will this be the thing that kickstarts mainstream VR, XR, MR, whatever? Will this be the thing? Because that's Apple's kind of been the trendsetter love it or hate it. I'm not an Apple person, but I respect that they set a lot of trends. And so I'm wondering if this is going to be the big thing that sets off this this public acceptance of VR in our everyday lives. I think the price tag is a little bit prohibitive <laughs> when it comes to that, but will future iterations drive that cost down? Apple fanboys will buy anything right now, and they are the ones that are going to essentially beta test this in an operational environment. I don't know. To Brian's point, I think games and haptics might take a step back, but then you also have all those techies that are going to buy this regardless of the price tag. And will will it pro- proliferate? I don't know. Barry, what do you think? Is this just a pricey Oculus Quest, really, or a Quest 2? For what it is... Because uh, that's the point, right? Like The, the Oculus true, is getting, yeah. get, getting better with... It's a good job. For me, The because it's an XR-type capability, so the design is interesting. It's fallen back on that whole ski-mask-type approach. I could almost see this being worn on an aircraft or a 
in a car or a car by the kids probably a lot easier than some of the others that we've seen. And because it's got that that pass-through capability, then I can see it integrating with that sort of things a lot easier. I think also some it sparked a few ideas for me around how you could maybe use something like this with autonomous vehicles. So if you're in your Tesla doing its auto doing its auto drive thing, you chuck that on, you can be doing whatever you want to do. But then there is a if it integrates properly, then actually when you need to be handed back control, it could possibly do that in a really good way. But I don't think that's got anything to do with this product as such, but it did inspire them ideas around how could that pass through HCI type of work. From an Apple point of view, I, I do. I'm an Apple phone user, but I'm not an Apple Mac user. So I'm not a laptop user in that respect. I do like the way they do their mobile OS for the general use case. Generally, it's very robust. Generally, it's user tested. And so things don't break very often. That will give me a fair amount of confidence in what they've done. But oh, fundamentally, this feels like Google would last to me. If they've chucked a product out there, what is it? What is the use case? What is it for? It, the kind of done, so what Google Glass did was throw the product out there and say, what are you going to use it for? How are you going to make this cool and sexy? And then it went away because everybody went, I could use it for this, but yeah, I also could not. And I feel that this might be there as well, that unless somebody actually grips it and say, this is what we're going to use for, this is the specific springboard use case that we're going to go with, then that's cool. We, we, and I just wanted to bring in something that I just found on socials just as we were going through this that a friend of mine, Bob Stone, sort of commented on. We, we've complained about the price already, right? So $3,500 is a lot of money. There's already a new version out there of the Apple Vision Pro CVR edition by Caviar, $40,000. But for that $40,000, you do get 18 karat gold all, all over it and headband made from the legendary, I'd never heard of them before, but the legendary Conley Leather, who is a supplier to the British Royal Court and Rolls Royce. So actually, maybe in that £40,000 viewpoint, then £3,500 is as much. So that's the one you're going to buy, Barry? I'm going to have two, clearly, because I'm going to have one for everyday use and one for one for show. Yeah. yeah, Barry's getting the big podcast box, so he's got the he's got <laughs> the forty thousand. Look, so I want to bring up a couple points here, Barry, that I think that you talked about here. You mentioned Apple OS, and I think you you also mentioned that you like how Apple does their mobile OS, and I think there's an important thing here for me is that they are developing an entirely different operating system for the headset, which leads me to believe that they're going to put a little bit more faith into it than they would than Google did with Google Glass. This is Apple Glass. Come on. And Apple's got the the sway. I think there are a couple points that I want to highlight here is just about what does make this different than other headsets out there that are existing today. Is you mentioned is this just another Oculus Quest? Is it techno technologically? Is it Maybe, but I think the big thing here, what is different about it is it has the Apple name. I don't know. Rose, you've used a lot of headsets. What are you, what are your thoughts on this? I'm really curious on how this breaks down comparative to other headsets. After weekly, I have not used this one, right? And that's one of the things that I was chatting with you is I want I'm I'm excited to get my hands dirty. I wouldn't pay for it, but if my employer wants to pay for it for me to bring it in the comparison, I would not complain right now. But it is what I've done, a lot of the research, keep in mind that I would be seeing how it can be all the headsets applied to forensics. 
how we can use leverage this technology xr mr whatever to bring in the jury to the site let's put it that way so that's think about it in the in that sense so what i've been doing is a lot of understanding each headset and the capabilities and limitations of the technology because they can all be used it's just depending on what type of case which ones would you deploy like cameras if i'm just going to document something i could use my phone actually like we were talking earlier like the 14 pro that is the one i have it has lidar too i can scan on my phone that with the 13 i couldn't so it's understanding the, the limitations and capabilities that i could potentially use like an example for this one if you just want to have an easily available for the jury that you can just have the 2d images that for example if i'm calibrated them let's talk about a real case right like nighttime conspicuity where i calibrated the photos and calibrated them in my mac so I know that the resolutions are transferable. I can make sure that what they're seeing there is what I'm seeing on my screen. I can put them in this headset and now everybody's looking at the calibrated photos as I did. And I can attest that's what I saw when I went and documented, yada, yada. So it, th there are uses. It's just to see, again, like what to what extent it could be a comparison to the Oculus, right? If it's worth the price, the difference, etc. And I think it may... Very, very broad a good point. If we have that it integrates well with the phone, the Mac, right? Like right now I have to bring my big PC connect, like very handy to connect the headsets. But if now you're telling me like, oh no, you just need your phone and you're good to go. You're showing the photos. That's, it, it could be really good. So it, it would all depend on seeing how like the add-ons, how it's integrating with their systems. Apple has done a good job, right? The Apple TV and all these things that you go at your house. So if they integrate these part of the, like the bigger ecosystem, I mean, I might buy in at some point and would be my go-to. That's a really good point, isn't it? Because it is, it's still early, it's early adopter technology here. So we're not, it isn't mainstream. It's still expensive. It's still that early buy-in piece. Some of the technology I think is just the usability or the wearability of some of it. So they have thought, they have learned from some of the other headsets out there. So they've got the fans in place to keep it cool. The thought about the balance and the battery pack, I believe, isn't actually helmet mounted. That's actually elsewhere. So that could be a pro or a con, depending on how the balance of the headset works. And they've got the down, so they, it can see your hands and therefore you can got an element of using them as controllers. So it does, they have learned from potential, from other platforms out there, but it's still... Yeah, it's still it's still going to be a niche product until it get until I guess until it become until it isn't because one one criticism I got of Apple stuff is that you can buy stuff early doors, but at some point the updates of the OS will just brick whatever it, the early technology, and if you splashed out the big bucks on this, particularly if you've that forty thousand pound gold version and it bricks it at some point, you're going to be pretty upset, but. You, I'm guessing it's more focused at early adopters, technology developers who can then crack on with that. Brian, what are your thoughts on this and how you would use it on a, I guess, on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, no, it's really interesting because it is pretty similar to the Oculus Quest in a lot of ways, but it's also fundamentally different in that the way it has the screen resolution allows you to actually use it as like a second screen. Whereas I tried to do that on my Quest and it was awful. There's no way you can get that done. It's way too blurry. But I've heard the Apple headset, you might actually be able to. It might have that good enough resolution where you can use it as a productivity device. Of course, it also doesn't have controllers. So you want to play your cool VR games, get a different headset. 
save $3,000. So I think it's really different use cases. I've actually been traveling a lot recently. And if this came out a year ago, I probably would buy it, assuming it integrates well with my MacBook and I can use it as extra all screens, as opposed to me carrying an extra screen in my luggage all the time, which is what I currently do. That'd be a huge win. There's a couple elements here I'm picking up on, I think that is Apple's intent. And I want your thoughts on this, everybody. So I think one of the big things that I'm sensing from Apple here is that this is a social VR device, XR, MR. This is a social extended reality device that they that's their focus here. If you think about it, there's a couple key features here that they are that they are highlighting in their presentation materials that make me think this. So the first thing obviously is this this I what is it called? The through site where basically yeah, so you can see other people. So if you are outside of this device looking at somebody wearing this device, you are able to see their eyes through this screen. And so I think that is one social piece of it, because then you can tell whether or not they are looking at you. A lot of human communication is eye contact. I'm looking at each one of you in the eyes as I'm talking to you, although I'm not looking right at the camera. I'm looking at you on my screen, so it doesn't quite map as well. But if I'm looking here at the camera, this is more effective in communicating than it would be if I were to look at my screen with my notes and everything that I want to say. But the other things here that uh, that are important, and I will look at my notes here for this, are that they are making this other this other claim that there's a 3D avatar of you that you are then going to be able to project into other apps like Teams, WebEx, Zoom, all these other things where your avatar is then it uses the the eye scanning technology to look at where you're looking and it will then project that onto your avatar. And so it looks as if you are not wearing a headset when you actually are. And I think to your point, Brian, about this being a productivity device, I think that is one of the biggest barriers is that if you are wearing a headset as a productivity device, you can't necessarily see that person, what they're looking at and have that eye contact communication that is so important. And so... I think these are some of the key aspects that I'm picking up on that they're actually gearing this as a social VR, MR, XR device that will allow you to still interact with other people around you. Because the other the last thing that I'll say about this is that there's this other aspect of it that when you are using VR mode in that your eyes are completely occluded by the screen, when somebody comes within view you'll be able to see them inside. So you'll know that when others are present and nearby, yes, they'll interfere with whatever VR thing that you're looking at in that moment. And there've been plenty of jokes about them. I'm not going to relay them here, but <laughs> when somebody comes in that view, you'll be able to see there's somebody else around you and thus not excluding you from social interaction. I think all these elements together really paint a clear picture to me that Apple is looking to make this a more social device. What are your thoughts? Everyone. I'm going to throw it to everyone. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. If you look at what they released, we've been talking about VR and AR, and they have been talking about AR and their Vision Pro. They haven't mentioned the word VR at all, which I think is very intentional. They want to make this an augmented reality device, even though it really is VR with really good pass-through. Does that count? I don't know. But I do think they really are trying to make it social. So I do wonder if those 
3D personas past the Uncanny Valley? Are they still not quite there? It'll be interesting to see for sure. Yeah, I think that that's an important point that when you were mentioning the see-through as well. And speaking of O'Brien's, right, like now imagine that, have you ever played with a VR in a room, right? Whatever that person is playing, you kind of feel that you're isolated from that person. You stay away. You don't want them to hit you if they're playing something with swords, for example. That's another story, but it feels like it's the person and the rest. And with this type of technology now, at least like that you're being able to see them, it's exactly, you're exactly right. I think they're going on that route, that it's adding the social aspects. Like you're still now, even if one person only is using them, I think, of course, they're hoping that everybody's using them. Then you can still talk and it's like a conversation piece, which then that would bring in the, we're already distracted when we're in a room with other people on our phones. Imagine now that you literally have it on your face and you could just be like, sure, I'm listening to you <laughs> and you have something else. So that may bring other components that in the social aspect that we have not explored, though. That is... Because I went the other way with it, that I wasn't entirely... Com- I've never been convinced that the that wearing a headset, no matter what happens to it, can make you socially interact with people in the same room. The biggest issue I've had so far is when you're... Im- because when you put the headset on, it's there to immerse you in something. And the biggest thing I don't like is you put this on and then somebody sneaks in the room behind you and pokes you in the back or something like that. And you then lose complete trust with what's going on because you can't see. Now, that's where I think this will help to a certain extent because when somebody becomes near, then you'll know that they're going to come and try and play a prank on you. Fine. But when you then try and engage with them people, no matter what sort of pass-through you've got, you're, it's always going to be artificial. So I do think that the... But I do think they are growing the fact that two people wearing them or a community of people wearing them will make that interaction better because that's with the Oculus stuff at the moment and not ubiquitously, but it is still a very almost lonely experience in doing it. You are generally driving it on your own or you're using that capability. There are obviously there's games and things out there to do more collaborative stuff. I've Unless I'm working with re- people and reasons why I cannot actually interact with them, have a face-to-face meeting with them, I've never found them truly a good second place to do that sort of stuff. I'm really interested in the things like you were saying, Rose, in terms of being able to replicate an environment, being able to make sure that they can see what you can see about enhancing what you're seeing. I've seen it used for design. I've seen it used for all that sort of stuff. That's brilliant. I love it. And I would have it tomorrow. But I think for me, we keep on trying to make it what it's not. We're trying to get it. So it's almost... Is it Emperor's New Clothes? So we're trying to pretend that it's not there. We can make you see through it. We can, you can see their eyes. You can see this. Like, yes, but you've still got a massive hunk of plastic, metal, and electronics stuck to the front of your face. That's not eye-to-eye contact. How do we... Is there ever going to be a future where we... Either everybody's wearing it. So a bit like, what's the film? Or Ready Player One. Everybody's wearing it. Therefore, that's absolutely fine. Everybody's used to it. It's just day-to-day stuff. Or is it always going to be the plaything of the rich? I don't know. What do you folks think? I want to jump in here and mention briefly. I think it's fairly obvious, but I want to mention briefly that we actually don't have access to this device. Well, yeah, we. I said it already. I was like, hand <laughs> comments. We, yeah, we are making comments based on reporting, and I do want to bring another side to this reporting. You go and look at some of the testimonials of folks who have used this, and I 
see an overwhelmingly positive response to the device. Just to read off a couple headlines here. I used Apple Visions Pro and it's Apple it's absolutely mind-blowing and mind-blowingly impressive. I wore the Apple Vision Pro, it's the best headset demo ever. First impressions, yes, the Apple Vision Pro works and yes, it's comfortable. So, look, Apple can pay for these to be sponsored and higher in the search results, but it's also Google that I'm searching and so But they... for what use? <laughs> but exactly, exactly. There's another here article, people lost for words reacting to Apple Vision Pro. But again, you also have other things like the use case, Rose. I was actually getting right to that. The Apple Vision Pro. Great, but who's going to buy it? And we're, I think... So we were talking yeah. earlier, really, like the potential topics in for next week, the socioeconomic status, right? Larry was saying, like, is this a thing that is going to come and everybody's going to use it? Not all these people can... There's two, two things on headsets, right? A lot of people talk about price, which is what we're talking about here. What also is the space needed, right? There's a lot of headsets that you need a big space with nothing, obstacles and whatnot. And not everybody has a bigger house. Not everybody can afford to have that space for whenever I want to use a headset for school. What it, because it, it, will be, it will become the thing that everybody has. It will become another tool for school that not everybody may be able to afford. So it's, it brings other aspects to it too. Would they be willing to at some point optimize the redesigns so they're reducing the price? Are there waving or giving people the access based on how much you can pay like how would we get there that everybody can actually have it like very says so it's like second nature and we don't care that you have that big thing but we're outside we wear shades a lot of times like you're not seeing the eyes of people we get used to it it's just how what are we gonna do one to get used to it but two that it is accessible for everybody so that when you know how Larry was commenting that is not just for the people that will have money for it Half the people here are wearing glasses anyway. I do think it'll be a lot like cell phones in that it is always going to be a bit of disparity, but they're also a lot more ubiquitous now than when I was growing up. And they're a lot better for what you get. You don't need to spend as much to get a much better one. So I do think like eventually it will come down. We're just really early stages. Yeah, and I think that's true. But I think to go back to your comments, Nick, about the reviews... When I first put on, what was the first one? The PlayStation headset on. I'm a massive fan of Beat Saber. I think it's one of the best games ever. Just because, so I used to be a massive fan of Nintendo Wii. Just that, Nick, yeah. When I first played that on the PlayStation headset and it's got wires everywhere, blah, 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 blah. And I thought it was the best thing ever. I was wowed. Fantastic. We then move forward. I've got the Oculus Quest 2. And I put that on. I was wowed. It was brilliant. Best thing ever. Because the technology has moved on. That's fantastic. And I'm, I appreciate the technology. And I'm, I've got no doubt that if I put this headset on, which I would have done if Apple had sent us one to review prior to the recording of this, I absolutely would have done. But they refused or just didn't respond. But no, I think if I put it on, it's impressive. We'll put it on. We will be wowed. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. But what use to what use? So my, like I said, my Oculus Quest, we bought one. I wanted to use it for some work stuff. And I, I like playing on it. There was like all sorts of things I was using for to get, get fit and all that sort of stuff. It's now sat in a bag at the end of my desk, probably now for the best part of seven months. Because I've had no... Compu- the other thing that you need to do, and Rose, you're absolutely spot on with, is you have to have the space to use it. We struggle. A lot of people struggle to have, you, to have a home office at the moment because of the pandemic everybody had to create their workspace at home etc cetera, etc cetera. does this mean now that 
new houses almost need to be built with that that cavern that we need to use for VR. Because I, you know, when I was using it, say, in, in the bedroom space, my bedroom floor isn't the tidiest of things. You're falling over all sorts of things as you're playing. And so, yeah, yeah are we going to have to create these sort of spaces, which is not ju- then just the economic inequity of, bit of having to buy the device, but actually to have the space to use it efficiently and safely as well. Two thoughts here. I want to jump in. Barry, I am glad you brought that point up because that's what I was going to end that discussion with is, yes, we'd all be wowed if we put this thing on. And that's the reactions that a lot of people were giving. And I will say there is a trend for those accounts or those influencers, those reviewers, the closer they are to sort of VR, MR, headset exclusive content, the more critical the more grounded that those reactions start to become. And so you'll see that there's probably a lot more kind of sticking points to traditional headsets that you might have with the Vision Pro. Yes, it's a great device. Yes, it can do a lot of these things very well. But again, like you said, Barry, your Quest is where in a bag? Mine is under my desk and it has been for months. And I'm a VR enthusiast. And so, yes, there's still that use case that needs to be solved. Now, to the second point that I'll make is with respect to the inequality and sort of the space required to use one of these, I think it depends on the use case. This could, if you were to use it for office productivity, as Brian and I were talking about earlier, this could actually be a great thing because now instead of one screen, you send somebody a Mac and a headset, and now they have infinite screens that they can work with in a smaller confined space. I have three monitors in front of me, actually four if you count another PC here. So I have I have four monitors in front of me and I use each of those for different things throughout my day. But if I had a headset on and I could mount my clock over here, so that way I'm always looking at my clock and calendar right there, it's off to the side. I mount my email up above front and center. Right there. It's always there. Never going to move. I use the primary space in front of me as a workspace. I use this for meetings and I use this for other secondary information that I need up. And then, oh, by the way, I have a tab open on another thing, but I don't want to, I want it up for reference, like maybe a table with conversion charts or something along those lines. I can just set that right up there. Something that I'm not using all the time, but is nice to have. And then, oh, by the way, my clock calendar over here, maybe as an alarm comes up, it can come right in front of me and say, oh, you have a meeting. And those types of things in a in an office productivity type of environment I see is a really useful use case. And yes, inequality, we may not be able to afford this. But if companies, tech companies can provide it for mm-hmm. their employees and give them a workspace that is specifically molded to their environments in which they are working, you might actually see an increase in productivity across workers that you don't necessarily need a full office space. You could actually mount these digital screens like three feet in front of you and you could almost like do a do an area capture of your home and you don't have cats and children and your significant other running around in the background but you're sitting there and you see everything. And when they get close enough, you see them. But you know, so I'm saying like, there's a lot here that you could work with in that type of use case scenario for traditional VR for games. I don't think this is it. So I just wanted to make that point. Where were we going? I do have a point. That. Sorry. From, from <laughs> yeah, go ahead, up. It may be because I'm actually currently working on a course for product safety and ergonomics. And as I see him just doing that, I'm just here. I'm hoping that 
we know we are talking about it and we have not even touched it. I, we, I'm hoping the researchers from Apple are looking out there is that is a foreseeable use, right? So I hope that they're trying to assess that now the ergonomics aspects of it, are they going to mm -hmm. tell you like, yo, you're putting that too high. If you're going to planning on be looking at that 20 times a day, that's not a good idea because the average user is not going to know that. Yes. If I'm looking at that high, my clock is there 20 times a day and you know, that's going to bring issues that it will be from the product now. They cannot just say, oh, but that was a person pointing it there. Well, you could have said, no, that that's not a good idea there. I've seen you like looking at that X many times, you know what? There's there may be a lot of stats in the back end, right? Like they could do that. So throwing it out there, ergonomics will be a thing depending on the use. And I'm not sure to what extent they would be looking into it. I'll just take that a step further as well, because the... We know that being sat at a desk and staring at screens for a whole bunch of time is not great. And we push whatever, either the 2020-20 rule or the staring off into space, whatever whatever is the most appropriate to whatever you're doing. If you're constantly wearing this device, how are, you going, how are we going to encourage people to go and take that quick break, to go and walk away from the desk if it's plastered to your face? Because that means, and it sounds whimsical, but actually taking that off and then becoming unimmersed, then coming back to it, putting it back on again, getting it all set up, becoming immersed again. That That's not trivial compared to sitting at your desk with a couple of screens in front of you. Is that, is it, so there's two risks here. One is that it isn't as effective because of the donning and doffing of the of the device. But secondly, is it could it actually be a health and safety risk? Where you're not, where you're not getting the eye re the eye rest that you need, the brain rest, and things like that, because it's constantly plastered to your face. Brian, do you see any risks with? Yeah, I mean, I think that's very clearly is unfortunately yes, because I've watched videos of people who like were in a VR headset for 24 hours and like they ended up seeing like the world through essentially like a window screen for a little bit because their eyes got used to that. And I don't think anyone's truly solved the like emergence accommodation conflict where you're always looking at six feet away even though when you're not so your eyes can get tired and totally fine for a small bit of time but eight hours a day i think it's good that battery life is currently only two hours right now but you can plug it into the wall oh yeah that's so. true cool what <laughs> wrong so, so now you're tethered as well brilliant <laughs> The heat so. sometimes when your computer is connected like it's gets hotter or like it's, it's I was commenting also to your point on the like the six feet away and whatnot. I, I was joking. I think I actually started seeing memes about that too, where my parents, at least the Latinos, I don't know about you guys, but it's don't sit right next to the TV. You're going to be in front of the TV. You're going to be in front. Look, get away. And now we have the screens right on our faces. And that is where we're going. I'd love to sit here and chat about this all day. So let's just do one more round on final thoughts on the Vision Pro. We'll start with you, Brian. Sure. It's pretty cool that Apple's kind of now into the spatial computing game. I think it's a really interesting first step and it will drag some people in, which is nice. Rose, final thoughts on the Apple Vision Pro. I think it has potential, especially how they have been proven to be good in integrating their devices. So I'm looking forward on that. It looks cool. <laughs> Barry, final thoughts? Similar. I'd I'd think it will i think if anybody can make this mainstream then apple is the company to do it they've got the background to do it they know how to do this stuff to make us not 
to make us desire things that we didn't actually realize that we truly needed and make them not only functional but desirable a fashion statement so i think the i think they are the people to make this happen i think there is going to be price issues but then it's early days fine with that but it'll be interesting to see when we come back to this in maybe 12 18 months time with the cheaper version and seeing what that does and just seeing how much the technology is bounded on in a short period of time for me i really hope this is the thing that makes mainstream vr mainstream vr i think the social aspect of it is very interesting to me and i'm very curious to see how the public adopts this thing especially if it is geared as a social mixed reality extended reality device and i'm hopeful i know we brought up a lot of questions and a lot of sort of critical points about this and it's easy to do that with headsets but i really do hope that apple is the one that brings it over that line and makes it accessible all right. With that being said, let's go ahead and just thank you to our friends over at, thank you to our patrons and everybody for selecting our topic this week. And thank you to our friends over at TechCrunch for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to our original articles on our weekly roundups in our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories. And if you really aren't watching us on the live feeds, you should because we have a pre and post show where we extend this discussion. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right now. After this, Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our monthly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and access to the full library of Human Factors Minute, a weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Are you tired of boring lectures and textbooks on human factors and UX? Well, grab your headphones and get ready for a wild ride with the Human Factors Minute podcast. Each minute is like a mini crash course packed with valuable insights and information on various organizations, conferences, usability methods, theories, models, certifications, tools, and much more. We'll take you on a journey through the fascinating world of human factors, from the ancient history to the latest trends and developments. Listen in as we explore the field and discover new ways to enhance the user experience. From the think aloud protocol to the critical incident technique, focus groups, iterative design, we'll make sure that you're the smartest person in the room. Tune in on the 10th, the 20th, and the last day of every month for a new and interesting tidbit related to human factors. Don't miss out on the Human Factors Minute podcast, your ultimate source for all things human factors. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. We especially want to thank our Human Factors cast, All Access, and VIP patrons, Michelle Tripp and Neil Ganey. We truly appreciate all the support you give, and if you have, just a dollar gets you in the door for some really cool stuff. We usually do these things, so I'm just going to do it. Hey there, fellow Human Factors, human computer interaction, and UX professionals. Are you tired of boring websites with no personality? Well, I got a treat for you. Human Factors cast.media 
is a website that's all sorts of fun stuff over there. I'm talking detailed show notes, news roundups, conference recaps, and even ways to submit your own stories. And let's not forget the embedded YouTube videos. So you can see how handsome I am, if you're a regular audio listener. But really, Mr. Barry Kirby is the one that you want to look at. And our esteemed panelists. I don't know why it wrote me in there. I'm sorry. Plus, it's searchable. So if you are anything like me and can't remember what you talked about last week, you're in luck. Check out humanfactorscast.media. And don't forget to use the... Okay, that's... Or it, there's a merch store too. Trust me, you won't regret it. And if you do, that's on you, buddy. All right, that was a terrible read. So why don't we go ahead and get into the next part of the show? It came from. It came from. Ah, yes. Let's switch gears, get to It Came From. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful or found the discussion fruitful, wherever you're watching or listening, give us a like to help other people find this content. All right, we got three up tonight, everybody. This first one here, struggling to see the point of my job. This is by user UX Anonymous on the UX Research subreddit. They write, how can I better understand my role as a researcher in product design? And what should I do if I'm unsure about my job responsibilities and the decision-making process? Rose, I'm going to start this off with you. What do you think this person should do? I don't know what I did there, but my mute button disappeared. I'm back. So this is interesting. I actually have workshops that I've given because of like the mentoring, all the eldest shebang. But what I would just say, one of the big things that helps help, it's leveraging the network, right? Like you are having or looking for networks of people that either look like you or that there's a lot. Like I gave an example. One example is I'm Latina, that's the tequeria. And there's like this lack of over like 40,000 Latinos in tech. And there is actually a channel literally of people that can pose these these questions right there anonymously and everybody comments and help them to create network you can have people that have been through that and even the same community the same domain or different domains that you can extrapolate and extrapolate from so it's just the network can be important getting different perspectives sometimes you think that you don't know what are my job responsibilities like you can also create your own goals but for that you need to understand what is your job overall, right? Like a UX, you're usually actually helping other teams. So learn what they're doing and how can you help them and make the case of what can that become now part of your job responsibilities as well. So there's that's the communication piece, leveraging the network, managers, peers, etc. People from all levels. And that can help build your goals and going on that route. I'm done. Brian I'm thoughts. all day about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <I'm done. laughs> Thank you, Rose. <laughs> Brian, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Just thinking about networks, UXPA is like everywhere. UXPA Boston, I've been to a million of their events, and it's really nice just to be able to talk to those peers. I think the thing here is, to me, your job is like to be the expert. Like they might think, oh, MPS is data. It's a number. And is that truly the best metric? You probably know what the best metric is much better than they do. So you can have those conversations guide that way. Every team is different, but ask your coworkers what they need and particularly what do they care about? And then you can figure out ways to help that way. Every team is a little different, but know the most about research. So how do you get to the best decision possible? How do you get them closer? Barry, what are your thoughts? I think you two are very nice people. And I'm going to be slightly more brutal in that if you're in a job as a researcher and you don't understand what it is, how just how are you even in the right job? 
there is an element of you've got to do you. There's a certain amount of almost personal responsibility here to make sure that you are doing what the sort of stuff that you want to be doing. And if you don't know your job responsibilities when you took the job, either way, it's easy to get into a job and not understand necessarily the full extent of what you've got to be doing. That's because every job is individual whilst we understand the core. But this really feels like you're, you're all at sea and you don't actually know what you're supposed to be doing. And I wonder just how you got there. How you are you doing what it is that you think you should be doing? So I think you need to be slightly more introspective to a certain extent and find out what, what makes you tick. And if this, if the job that you're doing despite what you think it is or what you think the responsibilities are, et cetera, if it's not doing it for you, are you right in the right place to begin with? Nick, am I too brutal or are you with me? You all are very nice people. No, I'm right with you, <laughs> Barry. I th- like my comments here. Who let you in the door? And I think the answer to this is just, how do you better understand your role as a researcher? Research it. Research your role. Like that, to me, it is one of those things where it's like, it, maybe this isn't, cut out maybe you weren't cut out for this i had hope that whoever hired you understood your level of expertise and would hire you for the appropriate level this seems like a junior question to me where somebody just doesn't know how to push back against pms and doesn't know how to establish clear boundaries within the roles that they are trying to and look it's always it's never a cakewalk it's always hard it's always hard to establish boundaries, but I, those are fights that you need to have internally, and it's all out of respect for whatever the product is that you're building. So I think when you have this conflict where somebody else might be stepping on your toes, talk to them about it. And if you can't have a discussion with them about it, talk to your supervisor or your manager and have them help you walk through that mediation. It doesn't need to be an awkward conversation. Just to need to say, hey, this is traditionally the role that a researcher would take in this type of environment. And I don't know. Have the conversations. It's tough, but have them. Yeah. One last thought, Nick. I do think this is a very common thing for people early in their career because there's a lot of things where, oh, textbook says I should be doing this, but I get here and no one listens to me. But that's, again, like, part of your job is communicating what you do to other people and that is just super essential in how you get to the next steps right said all right let's get into this next one here this next one is from ux stats you can't live without from user rapsdian green rapsdian green on the user experience subreddit they write what are your favorite ux related stats and why do you find them relevant. Rose, what are your what are your thoughts? I'm going to steal one of yours, but I promise I was thinking about that one, which is the tax, the expectancy, the, like the pre and post and things like that. And it may be because I didn't read that question, so I'm stealing your answer. <laughs> now, I have not looked lately, given like, from the UX perspective, given that I'm more in the like physical ergo and human factors. So I am much interested in seeing what you guys have to say. And that's my dog. Hello, Brian, dog. what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I'm a designer who always has to do our own research because we don't have any UX researchers at my company. Yay, it's me. So for me, one of the classic that we always talk about in grad school was five users find 85% of your problems. Just, just having a few users is immensely helpful. And technically it's 
with five users, you'll observe 85% of usability issues have probability of occurring like 30%. So essentially, it's just like your severe ones. You're not going to find all of them, but you'll find all the showstoppers. And that's always really helpful. Just five. And you can do a lot. Very. Mine, I guess I'm not strictly UX, so mine is slightly broader than that. I'm quite fun of the 80-20 rule. So you basically get 80% of the functionality done, and that will get you mostly there. The last 20% will take you forever, so just ditch it. It's not that important. It doesn't always work in safety critical systems, but hey, we'll just loss over that. One I'd like, I, I always pulling out just from that, is it all 7 plus or minus 2? When you're developing interfaces and the amount of memory you can do, I remember... That was one of the earliest things I was taught in my for, in my degree, and it's the thing that's always stuck with me. And I've always tried to break it because I can't be I can't be that simple. And look, we I've done this in lesson, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's one of these things that is not really bolted in fact, but actually holds true quite a lot. So I quite like it. Nick, what about you? What's your UX stats that you just live with and have pinned up on your monitor? Oh, this is really interesting because I think half of us interpreted this as what stats do you run versus what stats about UX are interesting. So I just found that an interesting little observation there. For me, I interpreted this as what stats do I run? And one of the most helpful things for me is, as Rose was alluding to, the task expectancy pre-task and post-task, because then you can you can plot a quadrant of where their expectations were versus where the difficulty actually lied. And that quadrant is really important for triaging some of the issues. So if you're like running them through a usability test and you have them, they expect it to be really difficult and it actually was really difficult, then you need to solve that. And if they expected it to be super easy and it actually was really difficult, then that is something that you really need to address. But the things that they expected to be super difficult, but were actually super easy, that's marketing material, baby. Let's go. And so that is a super awesome graph because it applies to many different things that they're doing. And you can almost apply it in any scenario. So that's my two cents. All right, let's move on to this last one here. This is participating in research when you are a UX researcher. Is it ethical? This is by user IcyNerve4760 on the UX research subreddit. They write, as a UX researcher, is it ethical to participate in UX research studies. Should I avoid participating altogether? Rose, what are your thoughts on this one? I thought this was an interesting one. The short answer is you can, it's just do it correctly. Either is it because it's a pilot? And of course, you know, how many times we just ask our friends first to get that in a sense, an idea. And our friends maybe from our same domain that are UX. So it, I just saw that more as, again, remember I come from a lot of the forensics, accident investigation, attorneys, right? Avoid any conflict of interest though. Or if you know too much of it. So we are all UX, but UX, human factors, ergonomics is pretty broad. You could be in this domain and you don't know anything about like some people are doing on specific, do like th those streams. So you can participate in that, that, that research. You're not going to be biased. It's just about making sure you're avoiding, avoiding conflict. And if there's any for some reason, what you think is not going to sway your opinions, uh, at least disclose it. And then when you disclose it, everybody agrees, it's fine. Brian. Yeah, I think even more expansive, like you do have to be upfront about it, but kind of let the other researcher decide what is and isn't appropriate. Personally, when I'm running tests, I'd love to get a cheap UX professional looking at my work, but I want to know about it so I can then triage their comments because they're not my typical users. So they're going to have some really important points, but not the typical ones. So just let them make the call. Barry, what's your thoughts? 
So similar, I guess, in in many respects. So as long as it's not your study, <laughs> then yeah, go for it. You've got to be honest, though, and I find myself guilty of this in some time, that you try and read into the questionnaire design or the interaction design. So you're almost trying to get, rather than just providing an honest result of, of the gut result, and so can you almost overthink your response to it? Then there's a slight flip side I thought about if you actually, if you came across some of this, and somebody was doing that, you got stopped in the street or something to take part in this, and you were you were part of a team developing a counter product or a competitive competitor product, there's an opportunity for sabotage. There's an opportunity for you to actually skew their results. And we've all played, we're all very nice people, and you guys are all very nice, and that's great. But if I come across this, would I be able to? stop the temptation of making having the opportunity to make my product look better i don't know i'd like to think i would i'd be a very nice person about it but you never know nick what about you would you would you do you think we're the best and nice people all the time no we're not the best (laughs) and nice people every time but i think i believe that Outside of any other circumstances, like you've mentioned, either we're working on the product ourselves or we're working on a similar product or we're doing it for a competitor, I think we are the best person to do this. And the reason is we know how to provide feedback in a way that will be that will help the end UX researcher, the other end or the human factors person at the other end of this, because we can we know what think aloud protocol is we know the methodology that they're doing and yes there is this intrinsic need to uh, i don't know deconstruct what what things they're doing behind the scenes but at the same time like if you just take a lot of the questions at face value and you're just like okay here's you want to know the answer to this here's the answer to this and i'll tell you the answer to it but i'll also give you reasons behind it and i'll give you sort of everything that you're looking for with it you know i think i think that's from my perspective we're the best people to do it if we provided everything else is taken into account and that's exactly why i'm letting you in my sessions all the time i'm just (laughs) also putting a little tag not typical that's quite verbiage right like you can the words that they're looking for that would actually move forward so it's important as well yeah you can speak product in a lot of cases too, which which can speak volumes to actual product when you're trying to translate what users are saying to product. So that's also really helpful. All right, let's just get into this last part of the show. One more thing that needs, it's just where we talk about one more thing. Brian, what's your one more thing this week? Yeah, so keeping in on the spatial computing theme, recently just for like random design fun, I've been using this web tool, Bezel. It's not the most powerful, but it's pretty good for rough prototyping. You can make loose interactions you can look at through a quest. It's way easier than Blender and Unity, though way less powerful. So that's my thing. Rose. Just random because we were I see all the social media and whatnot. So I just wanted to leave a run. One more thing, comment, given that I'm always social media, you've seen me LinkedIn, but I have not gotten into TikTok or Twitter, which is weird given that I'm always trying to see and testing how people would react, how you could leverage those tools and reach and whatnot. So it's I wanted to share that, which is weird. <laughs> For me this week, so last Friday, I was lucky enough to host the CIHF Annual Awards. And it was all remote. And it was a weird, surreal experience to a certain extent. So we had fantastic finalists. We had amazing winners and all that sort of stuff. But I was sat here. 
in my tuxedo remember and I had my glass of champagne oh and my glass of Prosecco and all that sort of stuff and it was such a weird dynamic to go from drinking a glass of champagne and congratulating the winners to then going back in the house I was lucky because my family did say you only need to put the jacket shirt and bow tie on you could just be in your pants it'd be fine nobody'd ever know and I was like no I think there's got to be a bit of decorum here so I made sure I had my proper trousers on as well but I was wearing crocs and it was also really hot And so just the whole sensation, the whole thing was something I think having a remote award ceremony can be quite good because more people can attend and and do all that sort of stuff remotely. But there is something quite nice about having a stage there, having everybody in the room, having an atmosphere. And I don't know, my jury's out at the moment. It'll be interesting to see when we discuss it as part of the, the the team afterwards. We've done the remote. We did the remote rewards because of COVID and all that sort of stuff. Whether we do it remote again next year, I jury's still out. But it was a good chance to drink a bottle of Prosecco when nobody could actually steal it from me. Nick, what about you? What's your uh, one more thing? Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that I was overwhelmed by a new game that came out, Tears of the Kingdom, Zelda. And I finally got over that that hump, whatever it is, that was just intimidating to me. And now I'm hooked. So if you want to talk about Zelda, let me know. Happy to do it. But that's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, enjoy some of the discussion about virtual reality. I'll encourage you to go listen to episode 246, one of our most popular episodes, Let's Kiss in VR. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Discord community. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletters, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. And again, let us know what you want to hear about in those newsletters. Join us on Discord. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things that you can do. One, leave us a five-star review. That is free for you to do, and you can do that right now. Two, tell your friends about us. That is how we grow. And three, if you have the financial means to, just a buck gets you in the door at Patreon. We're always dropping some fun stuff over there for you. The whole library, the Human Factors Minute, the full audio version, exclusive ad-free versions of the show. So there's all that, and just a buck gets you in the door. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank my panelists for being here. Thank you for making this a four-person show. This is awesome. Rose, where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about your work or Apple headsets? LinkedIn. I think it's I. whenever I have a chance, I respond back. I promise if you send me a PM, well, we can connect on Instagram. But Instagram is more like my leisure travel personal side. But it's fun because, I mean, at least I, like, I think I was in Turkey Three weeks ago, I go, I've been to like 45 countries. So you can see and ask for advice if you want to go somewhere. (laughs) Awesome. Hey, Brian, where can our listeners go and find you if they want to figure out where they can sign up to be a a test participant in one of your studies? (laughs) Most of the things will be on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I am pretty much Brian C. McDonald everywhere because I have a very generic name. And Mr. Barry Kirby, where can our listeners go and find you if they want to figure out where you're getting all that money to afford that Apple headset that's made of... 18 karat gold once you work out that all my that the money that nick pays me for coming on this podcast that then pays for all of my gadgets then you we can go and talk about how you can also get a slice of that pie if you find me on twitter and other social media at baz underscore k or if you want to come and listen to interesting interviews with people around the human factors domain then find me at 1202 the human factors podcast at 1202podcast.com as for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Stick around for the post show if you're watching live. Until next time. It, it depends. depends. 
spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.